This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. everybody and welcome to Spark My Muse. Today, Kelly Nikondeha is my guest. She is a co-director and chief storyteller for Communities of Hope, a community development enterprise in Burundi, and she is the co-founder of Amahoro Africa, a conversation between theologians and practitioners within the African context. She's also the author of Adopted, the Sacrament of Belonging in a Fractured World. And today we're going to be talking about her new book, Defiant, What the Women of Exodus Teach Us About Freedom. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being my guest. Thank you. I'm excited to have a conversation this morning. This book is very unique in to me because I haven't read a book that is exclusively about the women of Exodus. And they are kind of, you, you talk about how sometimes the women are sort of this side dish story, sort of this adjacent story that doesn't get much of the top billing or, or something like that. And I have to admit that I knew the, the women of Exodus, but you're really highlighting their contributions and and the power of their story. It, it's really, um, it's a great book. And so I was wondering how this began, how this story began for you, enjoying the Exodus women and wanting to write about them. Sure. Well, since I was young, I was always drawn to the story of Moses. Mm -hmm. And some of that would be our similarities in that Moses was adopted. And I recognize that story because I'm also an adopted person. But I also loved the fact that Moses was a liberator. That was always just so compelling to me. And yeah, but that was always Moses and sometimes his brother Aaron. And every now and then you'd see a depiction of his sister Miriam with her tambourine, you know, but it was, it was Moses that first got my attention. And then, you know, I think as I worked on the adoption book and I leaned in deeper to the actual story, uh, because Moses you know, he's the one person in the in our holy book that we see um, his story, not only as an adopted child, but as an adult negotiating his adopted identity. And so I explored that more in my first book. But what that did was pull me deeper into the story of him and his mothers. And once I as I started to see them, I think, you know, it it cracked me open to recognize their salvific role in his story. But then you start to see his sister Miriam, and then you, know, you start to see that there are these other women who have been tucked away um, you know, in, that, in that story. Uh, and I think that intersected with my experience. Uh, I live in Burundi for a good portion of the year uh, because my husband is Burundian. Uh, and so we, when I'm there, you know, I see these beautiful women, strong women, working in the rural communities. Uh, 98% of Burundi is, in fact, rural. Um, and when we're out in the communities with these amazing men and women, you know, they, the women showed me, they, they kind of 
cracked open my imagination for the ways in which women um, make communities work. Um, you know, I we started a community development uh, work about 12 years ago, and the men came first. And about a month later, the women came. And I remember thinking, oh, they're coming too soon. I mean, I know the women are going to help with the homemaking and the meal making, but I, I really did have my own sense that maybe the women were going to slow the process of the men setting up this new community. Um, and as I watched the women and how they added strength, how they moved things forward, how they actually were um, not even equal leaders, but in some ways uh, they kind of lapped the men. Um, it, they, they helped me see one of my own blind spots in my own sense that uh, I, I didn't realize the capacity of women. I always knew there were certain women who were extraordinary and strong and capable, but I think there was something in me that recognized, even I sometimes treat women like um, they're going to slow us or whatever. And these women showed me in real time uh, their strength, their capacity, their leadership. And somehow the connection of my own work in the Exodus story and witnessing these women, somewhere in that interaction, I started to see the women in the Exodus story too. It's like they helped me unearth and see these women more truly. And once you see these 12 women, you just can't unsee them. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, yeah, you and you cover some different areas regarding freedom. Mm. Three, freedom through disobedience, freedom through relinquishment, freedom through leverage, privilege, freedom through youthful zeal, freedom through mothering, freedom through solidarity, freedom through sacrament, freedom through neighborliness and beating out the rhythms of liberation, which might be one of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite Ooh. chapters. This is really interesting. You also interweave uh, real stories of real women um, finding liberation and um, historical stories and actual women in Burundi. Um, is there anything that you'd like to pull out as a story to show an example um, to readers, give them a taste? Well, uh, I mean, I'll share a story that's very personal to me. So, mm -hmm. you know, in the book, I talk about, of course, the women of Exodus. Mm -hmm. uh, I also talk about women that we would know in history, right? Mm -hmm. So there's uh, Rosa Parks and um, Emily Schindler, uh, the wife of mm -hmm. uh, Oscar Schindler, and all sorts of people that you, you know, Dolores Huerta and, you know, women that you would know. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I also share some of my own stories mm -hmm. from women very personal to me. And so I'll share one of those. Um, I live, when I'm not in Burundi, we have a home in Arizona. And uh, it's a red state. So uh, a lot of conservative folks, uh, a lot of people who uh, may be familiar with the Mexican community, but not so familiar maybe with other expressions of faith, other ethnic communities, et cetera. And I remember going, taking my two 
young children. I think they were going into second grade at the time. And the first day of school, everybody's standing out front. Um, You know, the kids are all dressed up. The moms are all expectant and excited. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a woman standing out front uh, wearing a hijab Mm -hmm. and dark skinned. And uh, she had her little boy younger than mine. Uh, And I could tell all the other mothers were standing together chatting in little groups. Maybe they knew each other from the previous school year, et cetera. Um, or they just started easily chatting with one another. But this one woman was obviously standing by herself, nobody interacting with her. And, um, you know, there's a, a small Muslim population in Burundi and, uh, we have a lot of good friends that are Muslim. And so that to me was not something that was really frightening, but so I went up and started chatting with this woman and uh, come to find out that she's a Palestinian woman. Her family immigrated here several years uh, ago. Uh, of course, she's Muslim. And, you know, we begin a acquaintanceship. And, you know, about three weeks into our friendship, <laughs> she confides in me that she's pregnant with her third child. And it turns out that it was a high-risk pregnancy. And, you know, we had only known each other for three weeks. But I was the person that she knew. You know, her husband traveled a lot, so he um, was like my husband, right? Both uh, Both of our husbands were away more than they were here, and we both had young children at home. And I remember her coming home from the doctor's appointment and she called me weeping, like weeping. Uh, And I told her to pull over to a parking lot wherever she was. I was so worried that she was going to get in an accident. But she had just found out from the doctor that uh, there were two holes in the heart of her, uh, her little baby and uh, in, you know, as in, in her womb. And she was just so frightened, so frightened about what that meant. And anyways, I met her at the house when she finally got home. And, you know, we sat together and it seemed like there were a lot of questions that the doctor didn't address. So I said, why don't we call back and, you know, get you a follow-up appointment? And she's like, oh, can I do that? Oh, sure. Well, how do I do that? So I coached her through it with a series of post-it notes, and I sat next to her as she called the doctor's office back. And um, what I ended up realizing is how much as a, uh, uh, you know, I'm a, this is my culture. It's not even about my, the fact that I'm a uh, light-skinned Christian, um, you know, citizen of America. It's just that this is my culture and I know how to navigate its systems. But here was a woman, you know, as an immigrant, uh, as somebody who definitely deals with marginalization in my state, uh, didn't know how to navigate the systems. And so she ended up pulling me into her story because she needed, (laughs) she needed a partner. She needed help. Uh, And I think in what I learned, you know, in the course of our, you know, of that pregnancy and uh, 
of course, I was in the birth room when her child was born. She's like, oh, no, no, you have to be there with me. <laughs> she was very aware that as an adopted mom, I never had that experience. So she wanted me in the birth room to to be there with our little boy Aww. because we went through the whole nine months together of uh, that that pregnancy. But the ways in which it connected to the Exodus story for me was that Pharaoh's daughter which you know, tradition calls her Bethia. You know, Bethia was a woman with some measure of privilege too. Uh, maybe not as much as we had, you know, I think I grew up thinking about her as, uh, you know, some kind of a Disney princess, you know, some, uh, but the truth is she probably wasn't, um, you know, necessarily like that, but she definitely had some measure of privilege growing up in, in Pharaoh's house, having some life of ease, on her side of the Nile. And yet it was this woman from the other side of the river. You know, it was the birth mother of Moses. We call her Jochebed who, you know, out of the shadows of the brickyard pulled Bethia into her story. You know, she crossed that Nile river. Here was this little baby boy. What are we going to do? I mean, she pulled Bethia out of her, privilege out of her, maybe even her paralysis, right? Maybe even Bethia wanted to somehow help, but didn't know how. And it took this woman um, from the margins in her story um, saying, listen, I don't have a choice. You're the most unlikely partner. And yet I need you to help me if this little, if my son is going to live, you know, and there was this sense in which my friend Tahani did that for me. You know, we'd only known each other a few weeks, but she had to take a risk on this light skinned Christian woman that maybe I was different than some than the others and that maybe I would help her because she didn't know how to navigate some of those systems without a partner. Um, And so it was just so interesting. You know, there again, it often is these uh, the women who are at the margins actually have great power to pull us in and to help us break out of some of the prisons of our own privilege, uh, to be a partner, to be with them in the work. Um, I don't know. It just, I was able to uh, see Tahani and her son just this last year. Uh, they, they have since moved back to Palestine and uh, live outside of Ramallah. And I finally made my way, their village is really off the grid, but it was such a joy to be in her house and to see, you know, Robbie is now seven years old and healthy and just the most beautiful little boy. And it was so beautiful to be together, uh, having shared that story, but she pulled me in uh, the way that Jochebed pulled Bethia out of the palace of privilege and into the, the liberation work around the Nile River. Hmm. One of the things I wanted to approach with you and and have you explain a little bit is your kind of storytelling in this book. Uh, You're a great storyteller and you use what you call sacred imagination in how you do the (laughs) renditions of these stories. Do you want to explain what that is? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Uh, So when I uh, worked on this book, I would say that my method it comes in three parts. Uh, so I'm somebody who is a, is a deep and ardent student of the text. So I do my exegetical homework. You know, I have my, uh, the Exodus story printed out 
uh, workbook style, and it traveled with me everywhere I went for the last set of years. Um, and I would put all my notes from my readings and my, you know, all the various commentaries. I did my exegetical homework. But I also meditated on the text. Having it with me meant I was always able to read it, to pray through it, to ruminate on what was happening in the story over years. And the third thing that came for me was this idea of imagination. That you start to see things in the, in the text because you become so deeply acquainted with the story, with the language, with these women, that you, you just start to imagine the connections, to imagine the emotions, to, uh, you know, the rabbis did this, uh, and now we have, you know, the Mishnah, and the, uh, we have uh, the Midrash, all the little, the stories. Uh, it was really the rabbis trying to fill in the gaps and answer the questions uh, because they were so close to the text that they saw, uh, oh, what happened here? And how did we get from this verse to this verse? Um, you know, they were using their imagination as well. Uh, it was uh, Dr. Uh, Will Gaffney who introduced me to the phrase uh, sanctified imagination. And she says that comes from her own tradition uh, in the African-American church. Um, that the sanctified imagination was the recognition that the Holy Spirit can enliven our imaginations as part of the work of understanding and interacting with Scripture. And I definitely felt that described a huge part uh, of the work that I did. Uh, because if you actually read the Exodus story, these women are, there's not a lot of real estate um, I think you get a, a fair amount about the, the two midwives, Shifra and Pua, but then you only get, you know, little, little fragments about Moses's birth mother. Uh, matter of fact, she's not even given a name in the Exodus narrative. We don't find out her name until further on uh, in, you know, in the, the book of Exodus and in Numbers. Uh, Bethia, we never get her name. She's just always known as the daughter of Pharaoh. Um, we don't even know all the names for the seven sisters of Midian on the other side of the desert. Um, you know, so it's, it really was the imagining that brought to life their story and what they must have contributed to the liberation uh, narrative. Um, but I always wanted to let people know it isn't an imagination as in the way that a novelist imagines. Um, that's a different kind of imagining that I'm not skilled with. I'm not a novelist. I never, mm. I'm, I don't even read fiction very often, I have to say. <laughs> but it, it is a, an imagination that is deeply tethered to the text itself, shaped by uh, the exegesis the meditation on scripture, um, the research, you know, those are the things that shaped and kind of were the seedbed for the imagining. And I, I pray that it was the spirit that somehow was at work. Um, obviously, my imaginings are not canon, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I pray that they were somehow, you know, informed by the work, but also maybe a little bit 
breathed on by the Spirit to help us see uh, the women who, you know, they are the hidden figures of the liberation Mm -hmm. story. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it breathed a lot of life. And I think it was, it made it a lot easier to relate to there, the Mm. typical emotions you would have in different situations, you know, you you could think, yeah, that would be me in that situation, I would be, you know, I'd be worried, or I'd be determined, or which whichever thing it was. And um, I'm still mulling over some of some of how you piece some of those together, because I, I mean, I think you're your book is like a slow burn for me. It's like I, I have to, I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I feel like I have to go over it again and chew it over again because when I've done that, I've gotten something different out of it and uh, it's very rich. So I think people really appreciate your storytelling, your particular way of doing it. I like I like that it's a slow burn for you. I, uh, you're the first person to describe it that way, and I rather like it. <laughs> well, there's nuance to the emotions of the characters, and I don't think it might be that people read those portions of scripture as this happened, this happened, this happened, you know, um, it, a story unfolds. But those were real people, and you know, complex people with relationships and and fears and dreams and hopes. And as I'm reading it, you know, settling into what their life might be like, or how it might relate to something in my life or my feelings about something, you know, it kind of there's different levels to it, and you can kind of appreciate it on different levels. So uh, yeah, I guess that's, if that's what slow burn means, maybe I just used a word I don't know. (laughs) No, 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 I like it. And I I think the other thing for me that that struck me is that the political dynamics, the ah. socio-political dynamics yeah. uh, that I had never had somebody point that out to me before. And that was almost another character or that key part of the backdrop was being able to name some of the socio-political dynamics that the story that the narrator does tell us. I mean, there are some pretty significant hints that are dropped uh, for the reader. Uh, and then you you can see that compared to our landscape, um, you know, the pharaonic forces, the fixation on greatness and numbers mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, the easy dismissal of women and the, um, I mean, there are just so many ways in which you look at uh, the way that Pharaoh's house you know, can look similar to the White House or the Prime Minister's house on Downing Street. And uh, these dynamics in that story still have resonance um, as we look at some of our sociopolitical dynamics, too. And I that was another thing that surprised me, uh, but continues to challenge me. Yeah, they're very common human themes that mm-hmm. that are not one-off things that happened long ago. They're like, there's people who are cruel and corrupt and in power. And then there's these little people that you might not notice. They, they weren't to be considered sort of the little people. And they mm-hmm. can throw in all these, you know, sticks into the spokes and disrupt things and mess things up in a good, in a really liberating way. And they can mm-hmm. kind of, I love the resistance of the midwives. I love their, yeah. I don't know if it's, when I when I first read their, their response, it's like, gosh, we don't know what's happening. These Israelite women are so strong. They just give birth before we get there. It's just so hilarious to me how they're like, I just, their attitude is is just kind of like, 
it, yes. it's so rebellious and hilarious and like yeah we don't we don't even help them they just pop those babies right out <laughs> they, i mean they use pharaoh's prejudice against him <laughs> is what they do right they are he we already know earlier in the story from some of the language that he he thinks of them as insects you know mm. this you know uh, he already and so they just use that against him and lie to him it's just stunning <laughs> yeah and they they just yeah they don't let their uh, lack of power or mm -hmm. status or anything stop them from doing every little bit they can to make yeah. changes and they you know i think sometimes that's what can make us feel hopeless or helpless is that you know who am i like does my vote even count does anything i right. do really matter if i'm just going to do this little thing but none of the women here think about that they just do the next thing that they know they need to do and i think that's that speaks to me volumes in our time because there are a lot of situations and problems that seem overwhelming especially when we're blitzed with the news about how horrible different situations are there's like i i can't make a dent in any of these but these women didn't weren't trying okay. to change the world they were just trying to change that one thing that they knew they could change exactly and that's you know it's very apropos to our time exactly it wasn't like they had a grand strategy mm -hmm. but it was a series of small moves that mm -hmm. each of them made and yet in concert you know they did they were the resistance movement <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah definitely i didn't know that miriam was the first person in the bible acknowledged as a prophet i would have never guessed that yes. um, and is it she's acknowledged as i guess i'm not sure how is she acknowledged as a prophet by the like maybe you can explain that a little bit and i also wanted to ask um which woman in exodus do you feel like you resonate or identify with the most mm. yeah i'd have to go back and maybe look at my own footnotes <laughs> um, there is there is a place further on in um, outside of i think it's beyond exodus um, in Exodus 15 or maybe 16, a little beyond uh, the actual story where she is named as a prophet by the narrator of the text. Um, so she is actually called a prophet and she is known as such uh, in the Jewish tradition as well, uh, which actually to me is not really, when you look at all the Marys in the New Testament, the Marys in the New Testament were really Miriam's. Mm, nice. uh, matter of fact, my girlfriend Tahani that I told you about, uh, she's had a fourth child since she's been in Palestine and her name is Miriam. Mm. But when she introduces her, she introduces her as Mary. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mary is kind of the, the softer, the nickname, the mm -hmm. uh, acceptable variation for Miriam. And, and so the fact that we have all these Marys in the New Testament, yeah. um, they are... They were their namesake is the prophet Miriam, right? Miriam had such a staying power in the imagination of the Jewish people, you know, that so many young women were named after her, yeah, <laughs> right? So she, so we kind of see, you know, oh, it makes sense that she would, she was named as, you know, the one of the the first or maybe one of the only named female prophets in the Jewish canon, and we see the. We see the tentacles of that all the way into, you know, the New Testament. Um, in terms of my own connection, you know, sometimes it varies. 
Uh, there are certain days that I am more provoked by one or the other of the women. Uh, but I think I'm, I have the most connection, durable connection uh, to Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, and, you know, there are a few ways in which that would probably be pretty obvious. Um, you know, like, like Bethia, you know, I am somebody who's grown up, uh, as we might say, in the courts of Pharaoh. I've grown up uh, as a light-skinned, educated, middle-class uh, citizen of one of the most powerful countries uh, in the world at present. Uh, and so there is a fair amount of ease and comfort that I have been allowed. Uh, there is a fair amount of, of access to the things that I need. Um, I often am somebody who benefits from a lot of the uh, what other people struggle with and suffer under in my in my culture. I'm often a beneficiary of of some of those things, uh, and so I resonate with her in that. Um, but also the recognition that we can feel trapped, we can feel paralyzed in our privilege. You know that yes, I am a woman with, and I can name a lot of the ways in which I am privileged or benefit from the system. But there are ways in which I feel that I can't fully change it either. Um, and you already named that that sensation that we often have of I have just one vote, and sometimes we even wonder what our vote does in systems that can be externally compromised or, you know, you can argue about, gee, does our electoral college really mean that my vote counts the same from this state versus that state? You know, there are times in which we can say, wow, I still feel like, you know, you may say that I have some benefit, but sometimes I don't feel like I have the power to change much. Uh, I can't call the White House and get an audience with, uh, you know, the powers that be and change the zero tolerant, you know, zero tolerant uh, policy that affects my own border here in Arizona. I can't even get in the governor's house and make my case. You know, there are times I feel the same paralysis that I assume Pharaoh's daughter felt. Um, and of course, Bethia adopted that little baby and named him Moses. And, and I'm also an adopted mother, you know, who's adopted, you know, my Two children are, uh, you know, one of them is an AIDS baby, lost both of their parents uh, to the HIV AIDS epidemic in Burundi, and the other is a, um, an orphan of poverty, relinquished because the parents could not afford. Um, and so I also resonate with her as a woman who steps in. I didn't plan on being a mother. That wasn't part of my chosen trajectory, but here were these two children who uh, were floating along in the river, who were in the, <laughs> and needed somebody to step in, needed somebody to uh, play that kind of a role in their story. Um, and so I also resonate with her that, oh, am I your mother now? I guess now that's my role in this story, that I'm, I'm stepping in and adopting um, and you know, going to live in lifelong solidarity with, <laughs> with these children and in some sense complete the work that their mothers would have loved uh, to complete. So I also feel a deep solidarity with their birth mothers the way that I imagine Bethia felt with Jochebed. One of my favorite parts 
of your book is on page 146, and you talk about, I'll read this little bit here. Uh, you write, I owe this bit of wisdom from Walter Brueggemann, who oh. wrote somewhere that a salvation oracle is meant to break the power of nightmares by reminding us that all is well. I think I took the advice <laughs> a bit more literally than he intended, but salvation oracles are how we comfort and dismantle nightmares in our house now. When, <laughs> when presented with the opportunity to move to Burundi, I feared leaving my job, my house, and the world I knew. My circle of women gathered around me and spoke in unison. Don't be afraid. God is in this. He is with you as you go. They stood around me, hands on my shoulders, on my back, one even holding my hands. They prayed blessings for me. They gave me courage to quit my job and go to Burundi. They stood against the monsters threatening me and in enacted salvation oracle setting me free salvation oracles speak of safety but also of presence and proximity they are sacraments we speak to one another sometimes bedside to dispel terrors of the night and other times in the brightness of day where fear can blind us and hold us captive women are especially adept at pronouncing such oracles offering deliverances small and large to those in their orbit I, I really, really love that. And, and maybe you could um, expand on that. I don't know that I've heard Salvation Oracles quite like that before, but I think that it's it's very um, apropos to our time right now specifically, but, but mm. we need them all the time too. We do. Yeah, I you know I've tried to actually find the actual quote where <laughs> where Walter Brueggemann said that. Walter Brueggemann, for those of you who may not be familiar, is an Old Testament scholar and uh, a wonderful, wonderful preacher. Uh, and when you hear him preach, uh, which he still does uh, quite a bit, uh, it's like you were listening to the prophet Isaiah in real time. Mm -hmm. uh, he's quite, he's a force of uh, prophetic uh, imagination. Um, in any event, he's, uh, so I, one of the books that, many of his many books, he talks about salvation oracles. Uh, you know, when you say, when somebody is frightened, and the word that comes is fear not, fear not. You know, from Old to New Testament, we hear um, what, what he calls a salvation oracle. Fear not is the word that we are given to quell our anxiety, uh, to settle us, to reorient us to what is, what is real. Uh, and he uses the example of a nightmare. Um, but he's you, you, I, he uses it as an example, and I happened to have two three-year-olds at the time, and I remember the first time my little son run, ran into my bedroom, just um, terrified. Uh, he has quite vivid dreams, and I didn't know what to do. And the first thing that came to mind was I had recently read this, <laughs> this sermon that he had you know, uh, given about salvation oracles, and I just looked at my son. And you named, you know, we named the, the thing he was scared of, what he saw in his dream, what was frightening him. And then I spoke back to him, but you don't need to be afraid because I'm here. And right, you look at right next to me in bed, Papa's here. And right next to you in your room, your sister's here. And I could just watch him calm down as he, you know, reorienting him. Uh, you don't need to be afraid because we're here. 
and this is real. And it, so there was something about seeing that in real time, um, just as a parent that was like, oh, how does this play out for us? Um, and of course I see the women, uh, I think this is in the chapter where we're exploring Zipporah, who is the wife of Moses, who is so often, uh, people, if they know anything about the Exodus story, they don't seem to, they don't seem to know Zipporah in part because she's out in the, the desert of Midian. She's, you know, um, People don't recognize her as playing a salvific role, um, but actually, we get this crazy enigmatic story. You know that Moses has had his moment at the burning bush, and is ready to go back. You know, by the way, Moses at the burning bush. If he didn't know that he was Hebrew, <laughs> that story would have played out very different. And so, again, props to Bethia for raising a son in the courts of Egypt, who knew that he was Hebrew. You know, there again, as an adoptive mother, I continue to be instructed by her. I want my kids to know you are Burundian and American. And both of those things matter. And both of those things can be pivotal to how God uses you. And I I want you to have the fullness of your identity, you know, the way Moses did when he stood at that burning bush. But um, you know, he had to go back to Egypt. And the story says that he and his wife went back with their two little children. Um, and in the middle of the night, in the middle of the desert, when things are dangerous and disorienting, the story says that God sought to kill Moses. Um, and we don't get any more explanation than it's that. so weird. <laughs> And then we hear that in the middle of the night, somehow Zipporah knew what was happening and she reached for the flint, which is like a stone knife. She reached for the flint. She reached for her son, circumcised him, said some words, did some things with the foreskin and God was satisfied somehow. God was appeased and and let them go about their way. And it's a very crazy story, especially to us on the outside. We don't get it. But in the logic of the story, they knew what was happening. And she, she knew, you know, some people say that what she did was a, right, she circumcised her son, which, of course, women did circumcisions more often than men. We hear about the, the priests in the temple. But actually, if you look at the history of Israelite women, um, the women were the ones who mainly did the circumcisions. And so she knew the right sacrament in the moment. And that was her salvific moment, right? Where she stepped in and again, another woman saving Moses Mm -hmm. uh, and making sure that he could lean into his liberation story. Uh, She doesn't get much credit for it, but, uh, but there again, she knew the oracles, right? We think of oracles as, magic or incantation, but really an oracle is just this revealing of what is true. And the sacraments at their best, you know, is that we reveal what is most deeply true. It may be mysterious. It may not be fully, we may not know the how, but we know that it's true. Um, and, and I think Zipporah shows us that, you know, she knew she was a priestess in her home. She was somebody who knew uh, the ways of the sacraments and knew when they were what was needed to set somebody free. Uh, and I just see so many women 
so many of our indigenous women who know their traditions, um, traditional medicines, traditional, you know, smudging, um, so many things that I've learned from them um, about their traditions and the way in which they understand how their, those sacraments work in their culture. And they're meant to give freedom and strength uh, to the tribe, you know. Anyways, that's a, that's a little bit of how I see Salvation Oracles is that we we underst- we understand that mystery matters, and that somehow we can make that real to one another to to bring about freedom or moments of awareness of what is true, um, and hopefully in times that are disturbing, we can give each other places of calm. And from that calm, we can make better decisions. Maybe we can get a little more sleep for the night, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's really powerful. And I think um, it's also a way to um, accompany people. Mm. Like you were accompanied with with your sisters as they mm, yes. blessed you before you went. And I think we, we might, I, I don't know that it's, it's, it seems a little removed for for many of us to do things that are that are sort of like that that, that might seem like a ritual that might seem um, overdone or something like that, but actually give quite a bit of comfort to just pause what's happening and to step in and, and kind of offer that accompaniment mm-hmm. um, that could really, like you're saying, reveal truth, reveal the reality that maybe we can't see that's but that's closer than we can ever imagine. Mm-hmm. There's so much juiciness to this book. I knew I had to be kind of picky about which things I picked out. But is there anything that you want to draw out from the book or a specific message that you'd like to impart as we wind down? Well, yeah, I think each of each of the women in their own turn has something to give us. Uh, and I, I guess two things that I would want to say in closing. One is... Um, that I don't see the women as giving us a very wooden one-to-one correlation. You know, it's not like because the midwives lied to Pharaoh that we should lie to our leaders or because uh, Jochebed hid her baby, we should hide. Um, You know, we should also engage in hiding per se. I think what the story does is it shows us when Egypt looked like this, (laughs) when there were palaces on one side and brickyards on the other side, this is what resistance looked like. This is what faithfulness looked like for us. But when your Egypt is different and your pharaonic forces are white supremacy, are economic inequality, are xenophobia, when you have different pharaonic forces at play, I think the question to us is what is our resistance going to look like? And so what these women do is crack open our imagination. They don't say that this is the limit. It doesn't always look the same, but if the, if, but if this is what it looked like for them, what might it look like for us? And there may be similarities, right? Solidarity, resistance. Um, you know, I assume there will be a lot of similarities, but how we actually incarnate those in our current modern Egypt, well, that's up for us to improvise what liberation is going to look like for us. And so I, I want to always challenge people to not just be limited to exactly what they did, 
but to see them as setting the trajectory for our imagining what faithfulness is going to look like for us. And the second thing I'd want to say is, you know, one of my hopes when I started to write the book was to give women in particular permission to engage, yes, in their homes, yes, in their churches, but also in their communities in ways that maybe they had not considered before. Uh, I think after the election in 2016, um, I heard so many women struggle with, really, they were wondering, what does faithfulness look like now? Um, after this election, there was already a lot of fear and concern about what this kind of an administration could mean for us. Um, and depending on who your neighbors are, you knew that the fear was real. Um, and women were wondering, especially my friends in the evangelical community, where, you know, Mary and Martha funded their imagination about the conversation around women. I mean, that was often the go-to when I was growing up. It was Martha and Mary and, mm -hmm. you know, who chose the better thing. And, mm -hmm. But I wanted women to have a different picture so that they could recognize that you have permission to engage in your wider community as well in liberative ways. Yes, you love and care for your family. Yes, you are pillars in your local congregation. And there is more that is open to you. You are part of the liberation force. You know, it is men and women together working towards freedom. And I guess I really wanted to give women permission. If you need to protest, if you need to be part of civil disobedience, if you need to be in solidarity with neighbors who look different from you, this is also part of our story. But I recognize that women wanted a picture. They wanted to see it in the holy book to know that this was part of what they could consider. And so my hope was that by allowing them to see a picture that they would recognize they have permission and, and pay attention to what the spirit might be stirring up in them um, in our current days amidst our current pharaonic forces. Yeah, and it really does help to have, well, that's that's why representation really helps. You know, you, you say yes. someone's done this. It's not, you know, it's not uncharted territory. It's just that, and it doesn't mean you, you can't be a, a pioneer or something, but I think it does help to say, no, this has happened. This is, there's precedent for this. People have yeah. gone this way and done these things and maybe they don't get any credit or they get one verse or something. It doesn't really matter <laughs> about that as long as they're contributing and, and doing what needs to be done. But yeah. yeah, that's powerful to, to bring out these stories into a richer light. And um, thank you so much for sharing some time with me on this. And maybe you can tell people where they can find you, listeners, where they can find you on social media or uh, your website. Well, I think the easiest place to find me, I mean, I'm on Twitter. I'm, I've got a, you know, a little place uh, over on Facebook. But where I most often post is on Instagram. So my, I think my handle is K. Nikundeha. So K-N-I-K-O-N-D-E-H-A. Uh, and so I post quite regularly and link uh, via 
uh, Instagram, love to do some Insta stories every now and then. I often uh, share about books that I'm reading that I think other people might enjoy. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I would say Instagram's the best place to reach me and uh, be part of the conversation. It's been wonderful to connect and uh, you know both talk and podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. So thank you so much. Mm-hmm.